Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church Podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. We are taking a compassionate look at just deconstruction and really helping people, helping one another, uh, helping those that we love pick up the pieces. Last week, we looked at uh, church hurt, and, and I don't know anyone who's, who's either fallen away from the church completely, uh, fallen away from Jesus, uh, who hasn't had church hurt. In fact, it, it may be something that hasn't caused you to leave the, the physical doors, but it's definitely caused you to like step back. And, and, and I would imagine that there may be many here today who, who've experienced that at some level, and it's got you at least questioning. And I just want to repeat something I said last week. Man, our heart is to, we'd love to be able to have the opportunity to, to walk alongside you and, and help you and encourage you and, and pray for you and weep with you. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big deal. And I think that's, I've been leading this church for almost 18 years now. And um, that's one thing I probably didn't anticipate. I mean, I anticipated a, a few other things, but I just didn't anticipate hearing the stories year after year about, you know, just hurt and, and struggle and, and, and the pain that has happened in, in churches. And so we want to help people walk through that. And this week, we're going to look at uh, trusting the Bible. And if you're skeptical, um, if you have deconstructed or in the process, uh, they're, they're, you, you probably have said or thought the statement like, you know, can we really trust the Bible? Is it historically reliable? Um, you know, I, I, it feels culturally regressive and offensive and just personally irrelevant. And, you know, it, you know it's, it, there's a few good things in there, but you can't take every word seriously. So what do we say to that? What do I say to that? What does the Bible say to that? How do we answer that question? Well, I want to take a look at that today and answer some of those questions. And I want to look at it uh, that, uh, and argue, surprise, surprise, that I, I believe the Bible is historically reliable. I think it's culturally reliable and personally reliable. And I want to talk a little bit about just some of the his, how we can have historical confidence. And this may be a little, uh, you know, dry for you. It may feel a little bit like a seminar and I, I'm, you know, but I think it's important and, you know, just kind of give me a head nod every once in a while. And if I see you doze off, I'll just move on to something else. And that's fine. But I, I think it's important. I think it's helpful. And uh, because a lot of people have come up and, you know, they've said things and they've thrown a lot of shade on the Bible and cast a shadow. You know, you can't really trust it. You know, who really knows if we have the original documents and, you know, it's just been passed on. And, you know, like the big telephone game. And, and you know, who really knows if, if what we're reading is really what was written uh, back then. And uh, we can't really, we can't really trust that. And, you know, the political winners, you know, a few hundred years later, you know, just men wrote that just to consolidate their power and exert control over people, you know, but the idea that Jesus was divine, that he rose from the dead, that he did miracles that people saw, these were just made up later on. And you can't really take every word literally. And there's been things that have happened over recent history that's caused people of doubt. I mean, one was uh, Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code. And in that, he said, the Bible has evolved through countless translations and editions and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. And for some people, that was like that. They just read that and it threw them. 
Now, I just want you to know that even, even scholars that don't, aren't Christians and don't believe in the Bible say, hey, Dan was just making that up. There's nothing historically reliable about it. It's a fiction. It, it's not, you don't, that's not true. So that was easy to pass along. There was another group that had a little bit more traction and they were called the Jesus Seminar and they were, they were throwing some shade on the his, uh, st- historical account of, of the Bible, but that was s- somewhat easy to refute as well. I mean, like one of the guys uh, who was a part of this, his name was uh, Paul Verhoeven, and, and this guy was a, a movie maker, and he made such classics like RoboCop and Showgirls. And so, like, I don't know that you could call him like a premier biblical scholar, and so you could kind of push him to the side. But there's been a guy maybe in the last decade who's come on the scene, his name Bart Ehrman. And he is a, he's one of the premier textual critics. He's, and so just people who, who look at ancient documents. And, and yeah, if you think this is boring, like listen to him. And so, but it's really, he's really smart. And there's in this world, I mean, they get into the detail. When I say they get into the detail, they get into the detail. And this, detail. And this guy is very respectable. In fact, I, I quoted him at our 25-year uh, uh, vision message. And uh, he, he is someone who... Uh, deconstructed from his faith. And uh, he came out with a book called Misquoting Jesus. And he was famous for pointing out there are over 400,000 uh, variations, textual variations in the copies of the manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. In fact, he said that there are more uh, variations in the New Testament than there are words. And uh, he was on Stephen Colbert. He was on John Stewart. And they heard that. Well, who can really trust the Bible then? There's all these changes. There's all these differences. Can you really trust it? And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that. There's the quantity of these differences. There's the quality. And then there's the issue of orthodox. Like, is there any version that says, hey, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead? Is there, is there something about orthodox about what we believe in these differences? So the first thing I want to say that one of the reasons why we have so many, vari- there are, there are 400,000 variations. That is true. Uh, we're going to chat about that. And the re- one of the reasons why there's so many variations is that we have so many copies of the original manuscript, which is a huge plus in the reliability factor. Like if we just had one copy, how many variations would there be? Zero. Um, so the fact that there's all these variations, it's kind of like me saying without uh, qualification, Michael Jordan, if you don't know anything about basketball, Michael Jordan is a bad NBA shooter. He missed over 16,000 shots. In fact, I am a better NBA shooter than him because I didn't miss any shots in the NBA. And so (laughs) there's a little bit of context there. Part of the reason why there's so many variations because there's so many copies. How many copies do we have? Well, there's over 25,000 handwritten copies of the New Testament that we still have today. We still have 25,000, over 25, 5,800 in the original Greek, which, which, which was written in, and 100, by the way, that we've discovered in the past decade. There's over 10,000 in Latin, and that became popular in the second, third, and fourth centuries. And there's about 10,000 in the other languages like you know Hebrew and Aramaic and, and Jordanian and Syrian as, as people around wanted copies of it. We have over 10,000 copies. Now, if you were to think about, compare that to other things that we know about, um, you know, the ancient world, either first century Rome or fifth century BC Greece, uh, all of what we know about those 
that time period, the, those two cultures, I should say, is, was written by five men, basically. A, a little, a few others, but basically written by five men. And we have 400 copies of their work. We have 400 copies. And the closest copy that we have from the original date that it was written is 300 years. And we have over 25,000 copies of the New Testament, and uh, the closest that we get is less than a decade. And so the, the, the historical reliability of the resurrection of Jesus, for example, and that there was witnesses and all, we have all this documentation, is unmatched uh, about anything that you would learn in school about ancient history. There's, it's in a category all of its own. Oh, by the way, there's over one million quotations from early church fathers, their writings of the New Testament. So like uh, Ignatius of Antioch, he lived from 35 AD to 107 AD. Jesus was born, you know, zero to four AD, somewhere in the 30s. Uh, the book of Acts goes through about 65 AD. That's where the, the, the church history is. This guy was alive from 35 AD to 107 AD. So he's there. He quotes the gospel of, of Matthew in his writings. And so, there's, so you have other witnesses of scripture beyond the scripture it, itself. And so this, I, I want to you know, move us from two different ditches. One ditch, it's just kind of like oh, despair. Like who, who can really know anyway? That's not true. You can know. We don't just say, hey, you know, was there even a Greece? We couldn't even tell because there was copies of this and it was 300 years. No, we, we know more about uh, the, the, the New Testament than we, and the events of the New Testament than we do of anything about ancient Greece or, or ancient, ancient Rome. So I want to keep us from despair, but I also want to keep us from like, uh, I'll, I'll call it ignorant certainty. You know, King James, good enough for Jesus, good enough for me. Like, no, there's some things that we need to know that we can be sure of. And yeah, we, we don't have the original, we don't have the original manuscript that Paul wrote, but we don't have original manuscript of anything. It was written on something called papyrus, which it, 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 it can only survive in very dry areas, which we do have some of that. Some of the, some of the texts, particularly, we don't get into this, but the Old Testament, um, some stuff that we know about the Old Testament, how it was preserved in the, near the Dead Sea is one of the areas that gets really dry. It's one of the few areas below sea level. Some pretty amazing nerdy things that you could read about. By the way, Dr. Dan Wallace, you want to write his name down? This guy's very smart. Um, and he, you can, if you want to just take a deep dive into this, you can, and you can learn a lot about how, what we know about the New Testament and even some of, about the Old Testament. Um, most of, a lot of what he's written is in the seminaries today. He's got tons of degrees and very sharp. Anyway, that guy. But so we, you have all these, what about the quality of the variances? There's all these different numbers. So we have all these different numbers. So it's actually a good thing because we have so many copies of the New Testament. What about the quality? Well, 99% of them, this didn't get brought up in the interviews, late night interviews, 99% of them are neither meaningful or viable. Meaningful meaning like they change the meaning of what the text is, and, or they're viable meaning like you can really trust that it's a legit change. So for, and for example, 70% of the variances are simply spelling differences. Not even spelling errors, like just there's more than one way to spell a word. So that's, that counts. 
When I say they get into the detail, I mean they get into the detail. So when he gets on and says, hey, there's 400,000, you know, there's more, you know, more variations than the verses in the Bible, you gotta understand the quality. So 70% are like spelling, and then the other 29% that gets you to 99, for those who aren't following with the math, is that uh, are not meaningful or viable. Now, of the 1%, there are some that are meaningful but not viable. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, Paul, wanting to communicate his gentleness with that community, says, I came to you like a little child. Well, we have one copy of the New Testament from the 14th century, handwritten copy from the 14th century, that says, I came to you like a horse. Now, that's a meaningful difference, but it's not viable. There's only one uh, real, meaningful, and viable difference between these copies of the manuscript, and I hate to offend or disappoint the left behind people, but in Revelation 18, where it says the mark of the beast is 666, it might actually be 616. So I... <laughs> but there is no... I feel like I hit a nerve there, jeez. Um, um, there is no issue of orthodoxy that is affected at all. In fact, Bart Ehrman on page 242 of his paperback edition of Misquoting Jesus, in the appendices, in the appendix, uh, he wrote, essential Christian belief are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript edition of the New Testament. I don't know if his lawyer made him say that. I don't know. But it's, that is in his book. But it's not in the late. So you have these things. I just want you to know, and we could talk, go on and on, and on and on, and on and on, and on and on, and on and on. And I really do mean, and on and on. But I'm going to leave it there. And if you want to know, you can know. And you'll be astounded. In fact, when you think about the fact, when you think about the fact that Rome paid people to preserve the history of Rome. And there's less evidence of that. And we have more evidence of, of a movement that Rome paid to get rid of. It's pretty miraculous when you think about it. In fact, one of the things that we know, this is the oldest, it's called P52. It's the oldest copy of of the New Testament that we have, and it's, P stands for papyrus, and um, it's of John's, it's part of John's gospel. You want to read that? Go ahead. No? Okay. I'll, I'll do the English. You want to know what it says? You interested? I think this is kind of neat. Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Are you kidding me? That's powerful. The, the remnant that we have. What does it say? Anyone, I am of the truth. And anyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What? The, you have to ask yourself the question, how come all these other ancient document, uh, documents are not on late night television being criticized and when we have all this other evidence? I mean, the average, the average Greek scholar, uh, 
you know, would have 15 documents of his work that would probably go to here. If we were to stack all the documents of the New Testament, they would go a mile high. We, we have what some would say is an embarrassment of riches. There's tons of evidence and in, in the, in the, in the, the, there's other things like the, the length of time. Uh, so we, we read in, in Luke, it was read in Luke that, you know, Luke said, hey, I put this orderly account and you can go, I, I went and interviewed witnesses, these witnesses that were still alive. And he wrote that maybe 30, 40 years after the event. Paul was even closer. Paul said there's 500 witnesses that you can go, they're still in Jerusalem. You can go, this wasn't in a land far, far away. This was in the city in which Jesus was crucified. And it happened about 15, 20 years he wrote that. So you have all these, these, this time thing. Not, it wasn't just like years and years and decades and centuries later. It was written within the lifespan of, of when these things were originally written. Not only that, a lot of things the Bible says, for those who are kind of like, but it feels like someone made that up to control power. It's also kind of counterintuitive what the Bible says. So like if you, you know, being crucified on a cross was not like a cool way to die. And that was, that, that was reserved for criminals to communicate that you don't mess with Rome. And so to say, hey, our leader that you should follow was a criminal doesn't actually make sense unless it, it's counterintuitive. Or the disciples, I mean, they're, they're cowards. They're, they, they trip up. They, they, they say the wrong thing at the wrong time. They don't look good in the Gospels. And then, you know, you have the testimony of women. Um, if you understand the culture context of all the culture of the day, Rome, whatever, is that the, the social status of women was so low that their testimony was not admitted in a court of law. So if you're like, she saw that person murder that person, it wouldn't even count. So why would you, if you're trying to consolidate power, say that the first people to witness the resurrected Christ were women, unless it actually happened. So if you think about it and get into it, you can get some more. But the, one of the things is like, you know what? Okay, it's true or it's real or it's, you know, it's accurate. I can trust that what I'm reading now is what was written back then. You can have that confidence. I really believe you can have that confidence, but I, I don't like it. It's culturally regressive and it's personally irrelevant. I just, I, it's, it's offensive. Well. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that in, in the time we have left. I cannot go down the list of everything that offends people about the Bible because, number one, that list is really long. And number two, um, the, that list shifts around all the time, which is actually one of my points. Uh, and you'll see here in a minute. Um, I want to give you two ways. Actually, I got this, this from Tim Keller. A couple of books I want to recommend uh, Tim Keller's Reason for God. Uh, he has a chapter um, on here that I find really helpful. Another book that I would recommend um, is a book called How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Kimball. He says some really helpful stuff, too, that will help you make sense of the Bible if you're finding it difficult to read. The first thing I want to say, when if you come to a text that is, that's challenging, it's, you know, out, and you're like, oh, man, this is culturally offensive and regressive and I don't like it, Number one, please consider the possibility that it doesn't teach what you think it teaches. I mean, one of the things that 
the disciples had on the, on the road to Emmaus is one of the things that had them upset is that they, were, they, they thought the Bible taught something that it didn't teach. And they were very upset about it. And they, were, they had lost hope. Um, but one of the things I think actually it's really helpful that this, this guy Dan Kimball brings up um, in the book, um, um, How Not to Read the Bible, is that the Bible was written for us, but not to us. So it's all these different genres over all these different you know, time periods, different groups of people at different times. It was written for us so we can benefit from it, but it wasn't written to us. There are reasons why um, they were written, and they weren't concerned about the things that we're concerned about today. They didn't ask the same questions. They, didn't, they weren't concerned about DNA sequencing, for example. Like, that wasn't a thing for them. They had other questions, like, you know, if you know, we just got out of Egypt and we had to worship all these different gods, if we stop worshiping those gods, will they still be mad at us? Those are their questions they were asking. And so you have to under, get behind it and like, what about polygamy and all this kind of stuff? Is, you know, those are the, like, you know, some of the premier players in the Old Testament. You know, what was that all about? And bride priced and paying for women and what in the world? Hey, it, it'll take a little bit. I just want to encourage you to be patient that it may not say what you think it says. And there's just a lot to talk about. So I'm going to leave it at that, but I just want to give you that encouragement and to study it. And there's some books that will help you, help you. And of course, we want to help you understand uh, the Bible. Now, of course, sometimes it says exactly what you think it says, and it's offensive. Um, and just by the way, it was offensive to people back then. Um, but here's something else I want to encourage you to think about. You may be getting offended by certain biblical texts because of an unexamined assumption of the superiority of, your, of our cultural moment. Most of us read a passage and we think it's, it's offensive because our culture thinks it's offensive. And so we just think that's offensive. But there are some things that we think is offensive that if you go to a different culture, um, they think that's just fine. And there are some things uh, that we think is just fine that they are repulsed by. And that's true historically in all different kinds of, I mean, you go back into, there were things that were very, very offensive to the culture of the day. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Oh, you mean that guy who has his boot on the back of my neck? Very offensive. And there's stuff. To, so for example, like, we, like the two classic ones, and we'll touch on this next week, is that a lot of Western people find what the Bible teaches about sex really offensive. Now, we love the stuff about forgiveness and let it go, turn the other cheek, 70 times seven. We love that. So that's awesome stuff. You know, golden rule, great. We love that. Don't like the sexual ethics stuff. Now, if you go to the Middle East, um, they're good with the sexual ethic. In fact, it's probably a little too loose. It could be a little stricter. They would prefer it that way. But the stuff about forgiveness, that's that they'll just take advantage of you. That's... No, we don't like that. And they would be very, very offended by that because they have a different culture. Now, here's a thought experiment. Why is our cultural moment superior to other cultures? Why is our perspective superior to other cultures' perspective? There's a... 
something that's not true that actually has a little bit of truth to it, that's how heresy has legs, how it has momentum and traction, is that it's partially true. And there's, so there's a statement like, no one can really know the truth. Um, you know, you can only have your, you know, version of the truth. And there, there is, there is, some, tr- there is a, some truth to that, which is the fact that no one culture, one no person is, has superior, we all, and see, that's the thing about the Bible, it's not a reason to say that it's not true, but a reason to say that it is true, that it, it is an equal opportunity offender. And it offends everybody at once for different reasons. And actually, we, you see that played out in how the, the makeup of Christianity globally. Now, this may shock you. I've said this before, but if you've never heard me say this, this, this may shock you if you've not done your research. Christianity is the most culturally diverse religion in the world, and it's not even close. Um, most religions, this is true about most religions, most religions are concentrated where they originated, okay? And so like Islam is concentrated in the Middle East and Northern Africa, where it came from. Hinduism is concentrated in India. Buddhism is concentrated in Southeast Asia. Christianity, by the way, did not originate, originated in the Middle East. You guys know that, right? It wasn't in Dallas, right? It was somewhere else. (laughs) And so, If you do your research, you will discover that Christianity is the most diverse, most multi-ethnic, most multicultural movement in all of history. And let me repeat myself, it's not even close. So for example, here's global Christianity. 600 million in Africa, 400 million in Asia, 550 million in Europe, 600 million in Latin America, 230 million in North America. On the other hand, um, secular humanism, where, mo- where most progressive ideals are born out of, and it is behind the, what you would call the deconstructionist movement, um, is very 21st century or 20th and 21st century, very Western, very white, very male, very educated, and very wealthy. That is the, the profile, in fact, Secular humanists are 50% more likely to be male. They are 40 times, 40 times, 40 times more likely to be white. When you think about Christianity, you probably, you know, most people think, oh, it's just some, you know, middle-aged white guy religion forcing stuff down people's throats, which I get that because, well, I'm a middle-aged white guy. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully you don't feel like I'm, and I'm really good looking. So, I mean, it's like all, you know, it's like, you know, all the, um, but most Christians are not white Westerners and they're not male. In fact, the most likely person globally to believe that this is the inspired, authoritative word of God is a black female. The picture of Christianity globally is not a white male, is a black female. In fact, if I was to get, if I, was, if I would have thought ahead, I would, if you were to think about five people 
who represents global Christianity, you would have two black people, you would have one Asian, you have one other, and you would have one white person. Three would be female, two would be male. I just think that you should think about what you are deconstructing from in which one has, culture, has a, uh, a cultural bias or not. You could be deconstructing the wrong thing. But, but finally, um, it's not just historically reliable or culturally, culturally reliable because it offends all cultures. It's personally reliable. This is the most important one. Um, first of all, the fact that it would contradict you is like a good thing, right? If you want, to, if you want change, if you want to... So like if you go to a personal trainer who doesn't tell you to change anything about what you're doing, about what you're eating... I mean, you may like that person, but it doesn't change you. The only thing that can change you is something that can contradict you. And who's going to help you when you hate yourself if you are, if nothing can contradict you? One of my favorite verses in the Bible is in 1 John where uh, John says, when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. When our hearts tell us we're ugly, God is greater than our hearts. When, God, when, when something tells us that we're not worth anything, God contradicts us. Somebody contradicting you is a good thing if you want change. The second thing is, is how you know you're in a real relationship. You know how I know I'm in a real relationship with my wife? Is we argue. We fight. There's conflict. She, she contradicts what I think and say and do. And I contradict which some things that she, well, I better not say that. Um, <laughs> in fact, I'm gonna go over here. And I'm, I'm just kidding, I'm kidding. Um, but that's how you know you're in a real relationship. You're not in a relationship with a robot. You're in a relationship with a real person. Some people think, and I, and, I, and I get why they do this, is they think if, we, if you really follow the Bible and you follow it to the T, you're going to become this cold, legalistic person that's judgmental that nobody likes. And there is some truth to that because there are people who, in the name of the Bible, do some terrible things and become cold and legalistic. But I would say it's not... It, it, it's actually not the opposite of a, of a warm personal relationship with God. It is the prerequisite for it. And part of the problem is, and I hope we can change this, part of the problem is, is that when people read the Bible, they, they, they don't just read it wrong culturally or historically, but they read it wrong personally because they think it's about him or they think it's about them. I should say. So we read the Bible, we think it's about us. It's what I should do. It's about, about following the Ten Commandments. It's about, it's about me. It's about this requirement that's put on me. So we just, you know, I owe, I owe, it's off to church I go, and I gotta do some stuff to make this angry, white, old, frustrated man in the sky happy. Jesus comes along. Here's their version of how they understand the Bible. 
Like you guys got this all wrong. It's not about you and what you must do. It's about me and what I have done for you. That's what this thing is about. And from Moses through the prophets, he said how it is all about him. It's not about you got to do all these things in the Passover to get it just right so, so God will be happy in the sacrificial system. It is about the perfection of the lamb. The lamb is good. You're good. It's not David and Goliath is not about how you can overcome your giants. So go out there and get the big sale. You can do it. Go, beat your, go get your Goliath. It's about how no one qualified or was able to kill our real enemies, but there was one who did. He killed our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death, that he's the temple, that he's the lamb, that he's all these things. He says, this is about me, and he comes on the scene, and he's like, if you're on that program where it's about you, you think you got to do good. I gotta, you got to say that your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And if you don't know about the Pharisees, they were professional law keepers. They got paid to obey the law. And you got to be better than them. He says, I've not come to abolish that. I've not come to destroy and tear that down. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to fulfill it for you. And when you realize, when you realize that this isn't about what you have to do, but you realize that the scripture is about what Jesus has already done on your behalf. Like these disciples, your heart will burn and you'll be a part of a real relationship because you're not, you're not worshiping some made up God that you made up or prefer or someone else made up or prefer, but you'll be, you'll be connected to the real God of the Bible. This book is not actually about the book. This book is about the author of the book who loved you for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that he who knew no sin. We all like sheep have gone astray and oh, can we count the ways that we have gone astray and he laid upon the iniquity of, his, of us all and he bled and died on that cross between two thieves for you and for me and he really did raise from the dead there are witnesses to that. We have historical reliability and, and all of that. But man, this is about meeting a real person, a real live person. And when you, when you experience that and you encounter that, you don't just know it up here, but you know it deep in your heart, deep inside of you, that he is who he says he is. And if you've never met this person, I hope you meet him today. He wants to meet you. He's here. He promised he would be. He promised he would never leave you or forsake you. He's not going to knock down your door. He's knocking. He's not going to knock it down. But you have to invite him. Let me stand. Jesus, we, we just recognize that this isn't about a book. This is about the author of the book. The one that just wanted to communicate just how much you love us. And God, we have made a mess. You're, you're telling us that because we've gone the wrong way. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. But Lord Jesus, you became the great sacrificial lamb. And the Lord laid upon you the iniquity of us all. 
so that we could be free from sin, so we can be the people that deep in our hearts we want to be. God, you have come to set us free, not come to box us in, but to set us free. God, I pray, Lord, would we be those that that trust you, not to just trust the Bible historically, but trust it personally, that we make it the center of our lives. We make you the center of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.